This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listening, welcome back to episode 31 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back again this week with a return, fantastic guest, none other than Joe Futsolo, and of course, my co-host, Steve Nassar. What's going on, Steve? Hey, Tucker and Joe. Good to be back on the show. It's our favorite segment, The Best of Masters. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, guys. Glad you could make it down this week. I know last week was spring break, so we're, we're happy to have you, but we've got a number of great topics to talk about this week. We were kind of combing through the master's group over the last few days, and I think we all found some really cool topics. But I'm going to kick it off with the first one that I found of interest, and I think there's just a lot that can be talked about. We can kind of extrapolate a little bit on this topic because I think it applies to virtually every aggressively priced listing in the market these days. So the post was by Tina Curtis Lombardi, not to be confused with Lombardi or Vince Lombardi, but she wrote, I was one of 22 offers on a condo in Beaverton. How do you stand out for your clients for a simple condo amongst the other 21 offers? Obviously, we're talking about a condo here, but of course, we can extrapolate guys into a house in Southeast Portland, Northeast Portland, or anywhere else where there's a million offers on you know stuff that's aggressively priced. So why don't you guys kick it off and let me know what you think? Well, as does everything, it reminds me of a joke. And the joke is of an 80-year-old guy who's fishing, and he looks down, and there's a frog staring at him. And the frog says, hey, pick me up, give me a kiss. I turn into this hot princess. And the guy looks at it, and he sticks it in his pocket. And the frog's like, hey, didn't you hear me? If you kiss me, I'll turn into this great princess. And, and the guy looked at the frog and says, gosh, at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. <laughs> so, and there, it, this does relate to this post because you need to find out what is ideal for the sellers. And the only way to do that is communication. So one of the comments, I'm going to give kudos out to Kelly Yock. And he said, have the best offer that meets the seller's needs. The highest cash close in under 30 days offer is not always the best. And then I'll just paraphrase the rest. Basically, you got to find out what's important to the sellers. If it's not price and it's not necessarily cash, but it's a 30-day rent back or something in, in those regards, that's what you need to focus on with your offer. Common things are... Again, outstanding communication with the listing broker to find out the seller's preferences, their timelines, their ideal closing date, possession date, who they use for escrow. Make sure you put in a love letter if that's important to them. There's a second half to this, and it's I, I kind of fight with it because you try and do your best for your buyers to get them the house, but you don't want to give up the farm, such as guaranteeing appraisals and waiving all inspections and making earnest money hard immediately. But these are the things you do to be the prettiest gal at the dance. But you need to match your offer to the needs of the seller. And Kelly is exactly right. Put in the best offer in the seller's eyes. 
Yeah, no, that's wonderful. First of all, great joke, Joe. and It absolutely correlates to the subject here. You know, first of all, I want to address one thing out of the shoot. If there's a condo in Beaverton that's getting 22 offers, it was not priced accurately. Unless this is a gold-plated condo on some beautiful body of water in Beaverton that I'm not aware of, I just don't understand why there should be 22 offers if it was priced in the realm of where it should be. Should it have five, six, seven, ten, maybe even 10 offers? Maybe, but it seems to me like there's something going on there. And, and that is causing, I just had a post yesterday on Masters about this within a, a different thread. I think that in of itself is causing problems on all fronts for all parties. It's bad for buyers because these buyers, in many cases, they don't understand when a property is underpriced. They don't understand that's a fictitious price. It's just a price that really isn't going to be what that property goes for. It's going to be much, much higher. So you have home buyers that are having their hearts broken. You have brokers who are trying to keep those home buyers happy, who are running around in, in a frenzy with no reward. You have the listing broker doing a ton of work, in many cases letting others down because they're unable to keep up with the communication they need to have. And lastly, you have sellers that have what I call offer exhaustion. I mean, those first couple offers are exciting, but don't tell me that 17 and 18, they're going, yay, yay, another one. So inherently, you've got that little dilemma there to speak of. But back to the question, I fully, fully agree with Joe and Kelly Yock. You have to match your offer to the seller's needs. One thing I will say, Joe, I've never had a seller say, yes, send me a love letter. <laughs> right. Or if you asked, would they say that? I think it's a good play in a strategy like this, even though I will say you're limited. If you're offer 17 out of 22, I doubt that love letter is going to get read. When we are working with a buyer, and I'll just say a few last things here in regards to this. When we're working on a buyer and we're going into a hot property and they want the hot property, I think being early is key because I think, first of all, they'll remember you. If you're one of the first couple offers, better yet, the first, I think the seller will pay attention to the offer, assuming the broker does forward it to them and doesn't just carry it on, hold it themselves. I think they will read the love letter. I think they'll have a little bit more of a chance, all else being equal. I'm not saying this is worth 50 grand under what another offer is, but all else being equal, I think it gives you a little bit of an edge. You know, when it comes to strategies, I think there's a few different types of strategies. There's individual strategies that are unique to the seller, but then there's other strategies that sort of layer together and help create almost, if you want to give an analogy, like spokes on a wheel, right? It's not one spoke on a wheel that suddenly makes it a strong wheel. It's all of them together. And I think things like being first to the table with your offer, having a love letter, being communicative with the broker, I think is key. I will tell you when I'm in those multiple offer situations on the listing side, we appreciate the brokers who call us before they show it to check on status or email us before to check on status. They give us an update once they get to the property. Hey, this looks good. We're going to be writing an offer. They send the offer. Then they, they, they follow up on it. You just can tell that's the broker that you want to work with. So little things like that. There's a few more of them, but I think those present a good package to the other side that is going to be desirable. Does that make up for the amount of money? No. But all else being equal, I think it gives you a good shot at it if your amount of money offered is in line with what the others are at. How about you, Tucker? Yeah, I think you brought up a good point because, you know, in our office, when Chris, you know, we put stuff on the market. I mean, we have one on the market that's a pre-list right now. And rarely do I ask him about the buyers or what they're going to write as far as an offer right away. I asked him, well, what'd you think of the agent? 
Were they professional? Did they call you back? Did they show up at the property and try and walk in when it specifically says it's under construction and not to do that? So those are that goes back to your point, Steve, about professionalism, right? If you're going to call them and tell them you're showing it, and then you call to check to see if there's offers, and oh, by the way, we're going to be writing one, and then you follow up via text or whatever to say, did you get my offer? You're doing your job properly for your buyers, right? You're presenting the professional front to their offer, which gives them the best chance of getting it accepted, All every, everything else being equal, right? Now, in this particular case, I will say that it was probably her responsibility to let her buyers know that this property was at least 10% under value in, in terms of its listing price, and they either knew that or they hired a new agent who didn't have any idea what they were doing, and they underpriced it. Fortunately, the market's hot enough, it'll correct the price for them. And so, you know, you really need to identify that in a hot market like this, if something's underpriced 10 to 15%, it's going to get bid up. So if you're paying over list, list is an imaginary price that it never sells at, right? So they got to probably get over the fact that they don't want to write over list. But that goes back to their agent knowing the area, knowing values and, and knowing what they're telling them. The other thing that you mentioned is, is love letters. And I'll tell you this, from my perspective as a seller, virtually every time that we've got a property to sell, money talks and not love letters. I get them. I read them. I chuckle. I laugh sometimes because, you know, when they start talking about how their dog is going to love the backyard so much and their future child is going to swing in the swings that they're going to buy, it just sounds like such horse I have to do. <laughs> You know, yeah. so it would be different if you lived in the house, though, Tucker. It would. I, I get why it's not that way with you, but if you'd lived in a house for 20 years and that's where your kids grew up, it would have an impact on you to some extent. Well, I'm talking about the buyers coming in, right? They haven't lived in the house. They're the ones writing the love letters. No, you're talking about selling your properties you build that you've never lived in. No, I mean, even the ones I live in. I mean, maybe I'm a little more cynical than the next guy because <laughs> I sell a lot of them, and I'll, I'll handily admit that. But, you know, it, most people money talks, not love letters when it comes down to it. Now, it's their agent's job to make sure that, you know, they're not accepting the, you know, offer that's 10,000 more, but it's the new Freddie Mac 100 program versus one that's three grand over list, but it's, you know, 50% cash and it closes in 20 days as opposed to 45. You know, there's some things that you can give on and then there's things that it'd just be stupid to not acknowledge the obvious benefits that another offer has. So, you know, I think you can only do so much. I think, number one, you have to recognize value or how much undervalued something is and give a, an offer that actually represents a real value of what you're putting on that property. Number two is having a, an agent that's really professional in their communication. That's going to get you farther than anything because you're going to get a lot more information out of the listing agent because they actually want to talk to you, right? And they're not hanging up the phone going, God, what an idiot that person is. Or, you know, I don't ever want to talk to them again because you know it happens. It happens all the time. And, you know, number three is just, you know, you got to write your offer aggressively enough to give you a, a shot in this market. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to throw out a strategy that worked on us here recently. We were the listing agent on a condo that was going to clearly go into a multiple offer situation. And we once we got the first two offers, we made it known that we we're going to review all offers in about three days. We got somewhere in there is either the second or third offer. It came in strong above asking price with a really quick expiration and acknowledgement that this offer, once it expires, we're moving on. We're not going to, we're not going to take it. The other offers had been at asking price thus far. We presented that to our sellers and they said, let's do it. This wasn't going to go into 22 offers, by the way, guys. This was, I mean, I'm talking a more normal situation. I think we had one offer the first day and we were going into the weekend and it looked like we, we might get another couple offers. I learned a little something by watching that firsthand used with us. 
I'm not saying it's always going to work. And I don't even know if they were bluffing. Maybe had we made them string along for a couple more days, they still would have said, okay, but we still wanted it at that price. But it was a unique strategy. I haven't seen it a lot. And I thought it was effective in that situation. Yeah, I think that's a good strategy. One thing that I always worry about as a seller is you always get the people to try and buy your attention, right? And so once they buy it and you engage in a transaction with them, now they become a giant pain in your and they are the people that give you the repair addendum with 40 items on it, 28 of which are just ridiculous requests. You know, like the sidewalk in front of the house has a small crack in it that might be a trip hazard. So you need to go get a right of way permit and replace that chunk of sidewalk, stuff like that. You know, that just you're like, oh my God, I can't believe writing this. So, you know, you have to, and that goes back to gauging the agent, gauging your buyers. And, you know, sometimes that hard sell that you got, I'm not saying that happened in your case, but. You know, if they're like, well, if they're not going to look at my offer, then I'm gone. I'm out of here. That could be a precursor of what's to come. But, you know, I don't know how that out or not. You don't have to comment on it. You know, it's, it's one of many clubs in your golf bag, if you will. And, yeah. and sometimes as an agent, your job is to look at the entire, look at the situation and determine which club should I be using here. And sometimes you're using multiple clubs. Sometimes there's, uh, there's always ones that are go-to and they kind of layer together. But other times, those are those are other unique situations that that you will I like that analogy that's a good yeah. analogy <laughs> alright well I think uh, unless Joe's got anything else to say on that we can probably move on to the next post yeah let's roll I'll bring it in this was asked or posted on March 17th by Dave Reed and it says a simple request more like a plea to those fortunate enough to be listing properties please take the extra time to label the pictures in your listings and please measure rooms even if it's not all of them. These simple and not-so-timely tasks for which you're being paid really do help. Thank you. I got my two cents, but I'm going to round up the anchor. Tuck, what do you think? I did notice that RMLS, and you guys are more familiar with this than me, just changed recently. You can add a lot more photos, right? I think it's up to like 30-something. 30 32, 32 high-res, yeah. Which I think is a fantastic thing because it's hard to cram, I think, the previous 15 or 16 or 18 or whatever you had you know, if you do professional photos, sometimes it's hard to give a full tour of a house and not many photos. So I'm glad they did that. I definitely think labeling the rooms is super important. That's something we always do. For us, you know, we do a lot of new construction. So our measurements are on our floor plan. So we're able to, you know, transpose that into our listing pretty easily. I will say most agents do not measure the rooms and put that in there. And I totally understand where this guy's coming from or you know, Dave posting this because, you know, a lot of people have furniture. Furniture is a big deciding factor in whether or not they like a house or not because they have to be able to fit their king size bed in a master bedroom, right? So knowing the dimensions of a master bedroom, they know right off that they're not going to go back to a queen. So if the master bedroom can't fit that king, it's off the table in terms of looking. So I think it's a good post. I think that uh, it's definitely something that, you know, you should do your job correctly and not just pop stuff on RMLS and hope to get paid and do the bare minimum. Yeah, and I'll take it from there, Tucker. I fully agree, first of all. Now, do I understand why some brokers out there think, hey, if I label the room or I don't label the room, it's still going to sell and I got to do less work, so therefore, why do it? I get why they think that. Here's what I'll say about that. First of all, the seller is paying you to put their best foot forward. I do actually think there are times when you're looking at photos and you're looking at a house and you're not sure or your buyer's not sure if they want to go there and those room sizes especially on you know on the secondary rooms and the master you're trying to understand the sizes and you just can't quite get that otherwise so i think it's important for that reason now would they still go there otherwise and maybe buy the house 
perhaps, but here's, here's my thought process on this. I think what you put in the MLS and what you do in general as a whole is indicative of your efforts. Okay. So let me use a quick analogy that everyone in our audience should be able to relate to. If I'm a seller or I'm working with a seller and they have a beautiful house that we know is going to sell, but there's a little bit of moss on the roof. Okay. Well, no, it's only a few hundred bucks to hire somebody to come get that and take it off. But would the house still sell with it? Sure. But do you know what it does? It conveys a lack of maintenance. It conveys a lack of maintenance that could permeate further than just the simple moss on the roof, which isn't that big of a deal. It puts a perception out there that the seller really doesn't care about this house, hasn't taken care of this house. And oh, by the way, if you see moss on the roof, like the rest of us, guess what's inside the walls or under the crawl space? I feel like it's the same with this. I get that you could probably sell the house without measuring the rooms. And we see those listings all the time. And yes, they sell. But if you're if you don't care enough to do that little simple task, what else aren't you doing for your seller? Where else are you taking shortcuts? And the last thing I'll say about that is this market isn't here for good, people. I mean, if you start to get lazy today and you stop innovating and you stop trying to push yourself to be the best you can be, you're going to be in for a really, really rough landing when the market starts to change. Because that's not the, the, the when suddenly your paychecks are fewer from farther between and, and the and the market's changing that's not the best time to also go oh gosh i got to start doing what everyone else is doing or i got to really push you've got other problems on your hands so keep your standards high even if you don't need to and don't be surprised if a you have more business now and b when the market changes you do better how about you joe i like this post it's just he took tweezers and just picked at one little thing. And basically, the root of this is, hey, you're getting paid to do a job. Do it as good as you possibly can. Be professional. You know, Don't waste my time, my buyer's time, your time, your seller's time. We have the opportunity to put photos and labels in RMLS. Do it, but take it much further. Do everything detailed and make sure it's accurate. And by the way, do some forward thinking. Figure out what the 10 most asked questions will be on this particular listing. If it's next to railroad tracks, how loud is the train? If it's next to something or other, you might want to address those preemptively knowing that that's going to be the, the top 10 questions. So I think it's very valid and I think it's great to make it as complete and detailed as possible my comments were a little bit different and I just said something, you know, photos and labels are great and you should have them in your listings. However, look, if we're talking about something that's going to sell as a first time home or a rental property and it's a thousand square feet, two bedrooms in Southeast, you kind of don't have to label, you know what the living room looks like, you know what the kitchen looks like, and you kind of can guess what the room sizes will be. So I think it's less important in the cheaper, smaller places. When you get into these grandiose homes that are a million, two million, three million dollars, when they have different quarters with a secondary kitchen and a secondary family room, you know, labels and photos become more important there. But I can't take 32 high-res digital photos of a 1,000-square-foot house in Southeast. I, I'm lucky to maybe get... 12 without people 
seeing the same photo again and again at, at a slightly different angle. So I fully agree in concept. I would blow it up and say, do your job as best you can to not waste anyone's time and give them the answers they're looking for so they don't have to show up to see it. Yeah, and I, was, I will say one more thing about this. I think there was a little confusion on the thread. It started turning into dialogue about measuring the house with a professional, and I don't think that's how it started. Like, when we list a property, we have those little laser measuring devices that you buy at Home Depot for 100 bucks, and we go from room to room and we measure them. I think that's how the author, Dave Reed of the thread, intended it. But then it got into hiring a professional appraiser. That's a whole different ball of wax. There was people on the coast that say we don't measure our own houses. And I don't know which one they were talking about because you should never measure a house for square footage. As a broker, you shouldn't. That's a huge responsibility. If the seller says, hey, we added a bunch of stuff to the house and I don't know how big it is now, you should not pull out your tape measure and try to figure out whether the closet gets counted or doesn't get counted and what, what angles of the room get used. That's a professional's job and you should definitely outsource that to a professional. However, you by all means, pull out your little laser pointer and go into the living room and go to the two walls and go, okay, this one's 15 by 18 feet and go, you know, room by room, fill out your little data sheet and, and load that into the MLS and, and do a good job of all the amenities room by room as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Steve, because, you know, people are just looking at that. Again, it's mainly for furniture and setup, not so much for square footage and value. So two different things in terms of, of getting those numbers. Yep. So let's go on to the next one. I will read this one. This one was by Jennifer Herrera Walsh and her post was, hello, all help, please. On my listing, buyer let inspection period expire. Now I have a repair addendum with some hefty fixes. Buyer's agent is threatening to cancel based on loan or prelim if we don't extend and or accept. Of course, we want to work with them, but my question is, can they really just use their mistake as an out by redirecting the cancellation reason? I feel like he's trying to back us into a corner. Joe, why don't you hit that one off? Well, you know, we all have clients that feel they know everything there is to know about real estate because they watch a lot of HGTV, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, this thread, it kind of struck me funny because, you know, people are throwing out as advice and legal advice. And, you know, it just made me think, gosh, I watched The Good Wife on TV. And for those of you don't know, The Good Wife is a law-heavy, one of those trial lawyer type shows. And so everyone's kind of giving advice as if they were attorneys. And so first and foremost, I would say these two things. Take everyone's advice with a grain of salt. And if you have specific questions, ask your principal. And also know your timelines. Because who cares about the inspection period timeline if you haven't furnished the disclosures to them, right? A timeline is your latest expiring timeline is the one to focus on not necessarily what it is. It's just you want to close all the windows and doors, and the very last one on the calendar is the one that's most important. The other thing is, regardless of whether this inspection period expired or not, if the sellers are not holding the earnest money in their hand, it's truly non-refundable. Even though, let's say, it, it's been appraised and the inspection period's gone and all the disclosure periods are gone, if the seller is not holding that money in their hands, 
it could still be a fight to get it. And it's not always 100% automatic. So to go specifically back to this post, the intent was the sellers still wanted to keep this alive and they still wanted to negotiate with this buyer, even though the inspection period had expired. But she was getting a little bit of pushback from the selling agent that even though I was irresponsible and I let this thing lapse, we still want to negotiate. And if you don't negotiate with us, we're going to get out of a loophole and say they didn't qualify and we get our earnest money. So, you know, that's not a win-win situation. You got to have people in it to win it. Both sides need to agree. I'll uh, briefly kind of paraphrase. I'm going to give kudos out to uh, Billy Grippo, which I thought was fabulous. And then I added just a tiny bit to it to make it a little bit more upholding, I guess. Billy says, presuming that your sellers are aware of the expiration and are aware that the buyer's broker have put the clients in a distinctly poor position to negotiate repairs and with virtually no leverage but still wish to try and close the sale, I would send an email stating all of this over to them that the inspection period's gone and all this other stuff. Now I'm paraphrasing. And then you would have a digital record of that and then you just move forward and negotiate. And if it ever does blow up, you have that email to take into court or mediation, arbitration to stand behind you. And I said, I like Billy's rendition of the whole thing. And the only thing I would add is that if you did negotiate these repairs and both people were on board, regardless of inspection period being expired or not, that upon acceptance of this addendum, with the sellers either their willingness to contribute funds or participate in repairs even after this inspection period's over, that the buyer's earnest money is non-refundable and is to be released directly to the seller. You may see if uh, the title company has a special, hey, before we release the form, you got to sign this for us. And if they do have one of those forms, get that, have your seller sign it, send the addendum to them, with what they're willing to do as far as repairs or credit and send that release along with it. So at that point forward, the buyers have negotiated what the seller's willing to contribute as far as these repairs. From that point forward, you don't want to deal with this. If we don't like the way things are going later in the future of this deal, then we're still going to pull out the trump card that the buyer didn't qualify for the loan and they're going to fight for the earnest money. So I think money talks and BS walks, and I think you got to take their earnest money from them at that point. And so if they are going to bounce, they're bouncing, but they're leaving a, a chunk of skin in the game. Yeah, I think that's some good points you made there. I think that you definitely have to require that of them. I mean, I'm going to speak from more of the emotional level and not so much the practical clubs in the golf bag analogy that Steve used previously, which I actually like a lot. That's why I used it. But you know, for me personally, if I was dealing with some buyers and the agent was non-communicative, because basically that's what's going to happen, right? You as a listing agent's like, hey, buyer's agent, where's our repair addendum? What's going on? You're going to be saying this to them probably two days, three days before the inspection period's up, and you're not getting any answer. You're not getting any answer. And then, oh, by the way, the day after it expires, they say, okay, we're ready to play now. Here's our ridiculous list of repair requests. Oh, by the way, if you don't like them, then you know we're going to 
choose some out that the reason why it fell apart is not this, but it's the prelim or it's the loan. To me, that says, you know, why don't you pound sand and go waste somebody else's time? Because I think that, A, that's going to be a precursor to how the rest of the transaction goes, which is just going to make a, a really stressful and at the end of the day, your sellers are going to be like, God, I wish I didn't sell these a-holes this house. They don't deserve it. You know, it's just going to leave a bad taste in their mouth. And me personally, I hate it when an agent is non-communicative throughout the inspection period and we don't get anything from them until five o'clock on the last day of the inspection period. I just think that's a bunch of BS. I think that you need to be more professional and communicate. If you had your inspection a week prior you don't need seven friggin' days to come up with your, you know, list of items or determine, you know, at least give, uh, be communicative. I mean, you can wait till the end to give the list, but maybe have a conversation with the listing agent. And say, hey, here's what we found. There's like five or six things we're trying to work through and figure out what's reasonable to ask for and what the costs are associated, things like that. But it sounds to me like the buyer's agent is terrible at their job. And, you know, now they're just trying to inflict more pain on the sellers and the listing agents. So I personally would tell them to go pound sand. Or if we did move forward, I'd say, well, release the earnest money, like Joe said, to the sellers and not just to escrow. Because if it's released just to escrow, that can become a whole nother dogfight to get it after the fact. It needs to be released directly to the sellers. And my gut would tell me that these buyers wouldn't do that because they're probably in it to try and needle you for more and more and more until you finally say, I'm done, you know. So that's just my guess. Yeah, and I'm going to focus really on one component of this a lot. Don't let your inspection period expire. I mean, how much of this post would have not been necessary if that hadn't occurred? And I think that falls on both brokers, if you ask me. And first of all, I've been on both sides of this. I've had team members where we're on the buy side and we didn't extend in time and suddenly this conversation's happening. And I've had listings where we weren't pushing them to get us a repair in them. All of a sudden we're out. We're past the inspection period. And it does. It puts the contract in an unpleasant state. And there's a lot of tensions about who has rights and who doesn't and who's forced to buy it as is and who suddenly, you know, doesn't have, you know, a leg to stand on. I just think it's a it's unhealthy for a transaction. So the thing that I've drilled into my team is this very simple. If you're 24 hours away from the inspection period expiration, and an agreement is not in sight, extend. And here's why it's 24 hours. Because you got a DocuSign, you got to send it to them, they got a DocuSign, people are driving, they're at work. If you wait till the afternoon of and go, oh my gosh, I think we need an extension, then you could quickly find yourself in this situation. So that said, now moving past that, let's talk about, so you find yourself in this situation and as she is. I'm of the mindset that you're far better off to work through this with those people assuming they will, which was to be determined and, and isn't always the case, but play nice and try to work through them. And it doesn't sound like they did. If they'd taken a hardline stance like, nope, we're keeping your earnest money or you're buying it as is, that's a bad situation. That's No one's going to win there and you're probably going to have a sale fail. You're going to have a fight over earnest money and you're going to go back on the market and you're going you're gonna to start the entire process over. You've got a sale fail in your history, which is just brutal to a listing. We all know that especially over inspection period. I mean, you're, you're going to have to be honest about that. You're going to have to provide that inspection report. So you're far better off to just work through this. And it sounds like her sellers were on board with that. Now, you have a little bit of an advantage in those negotiations, I think. But if you try to resist the urge to do to them what they were doing to you, hey, you have to buy it as is, so we're not going to do any repairs now. Be reasonable in that process, and I bet you'll get it figured out. 
I think those are probably good points, Steve, that counter my argument of uh, the emotional side of it. But I think that the one thing I saw in here was with some hefty fixes, which, you know, that should be communicated ahead of time. I like, agree. And, and, yeah. if, and if that agent didn't communicate those things, then to me, that this just has train wreck written all over it. And that's why, you know, I'm not, I mean, again, maybe I'm more cynical than the average person because I've been through a whole bunch of these transactions. I've heard every excuse. I've seen every type of buyer. And so I see something like this and I'm thinking, train wreck coming right at you, you know, and uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's just where I go with it. No, absolutely correct, Tucker. If If your inspection is on Tuesday and your expiration of the contingency is Friday, and on Tuesday you realize that there's a bad zero-life roof on the house, they should not be finding out about that even Thursday or Friday. I mean, you you almost should be shooting an email or picking up the phone better yet and having a quick conversation saying, hey, did you guys know the life of the roof or the condition of the roof? Those major things should not be an 11th-hour surprise. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to the last one, guys. This one was by Pam Waldman, and it says, Do you continue to show properties when your buyers are pending in the middle of the inspection period, working on our repair addendum that may or may not be mutually agreed upon? I will take that one first, I guess, since I haven't done that one yet. So here's my take on this one, guys. I think that you have to have a little bit of a balanced approach to this, okay? I loved everybody that said turn off their search the second the offer is accepted. We do that systematically. We don't even leave it to memory. It's a part of our process, and it automatically happens. Search is turned off. If buyers said, I want to see another house, we say, nope, you're in contract on one. Why do you want to see another house? Very, very black and white there. Where I think you kind of go into the gray and, and have to have a little bit of a reasonable approach is if you start to do the inspections and... If you do the inspections and you don't like the house, then you terminate, right? But if you do the inspections, you find a bunch of stuff, you start to dialogue with the seller, and they're just not, the selling side is not having it, and you communicate that to the buyer, and they start to have some mixed feelings about, well, I like the house, but what else is out there? I just don't want to be hard, fast. I I felt like there was a lot of people that were hard, fast, saying never, ever, ever terminate first, then do it. I think there could be a couple rare situations where you deviate a little bit from that. Perhaps if the buyer's torn, they're not liking how they're being treated by the selling side. They do like the house, but maybe they are also catching wind of a couple other properties out there. And maybe that going to those properties will bring them back to that house. So I would never say I'd never do that, but it's definitely not something that we gear up and try to do. And and we would never do it outside of this exact specific circumstance, which is negotiations in force and sellers seemingly not, you know, coming around. How about you, Joe? I agree. What I say is I want my buyers to be in it to win it and just all in unless given a reason not to which would be starting to get some pushback from sellers and and identifying certain things that you don't really like in the transaction or having a bad inspection and not being able to get through it, then obviously this may not be the place for them and you want to protect your buyers and make sure they get the best place. But from the onset, I want them to be all in on it and provided that it appraises to value and the inspection comes back perfectly then they're happy with the price and we close as usual. 
But people that go out and put multiple offers on three different houses at the same time because it's a crazy market, or people that put an offer on one and keep one eye open looking for the next best thing, playing the what if, what if this one down here that just came up, you know, today, maybe this one's better and maybe that one's better, you know, or, or your deal shoppers, those guys that are just constantly looking for the best deal. I don't have the patience for that. And there's a lot of time wasting going on. So I like to think that all the properties that are on the market, when we find that one, we're not looking at all let's say someone's looking and there's 70 properties that meet their criteria. We're not looking at all 70. We can pretty much screen it down to the top five that are the best that, you know, if it's been on the market more than a month, that tells you something. If it's on a busy road, if it's next to power lines, you can ferret out the ones that are bad listings and whittle it down to the top five or six or seven or whatever it may be. You show them those and if it isn't one of those, you're going to have to wait till something else pops up. But when you find it, you march forward. And unless given a specific reason to bow out, you should not be keeping your eye open. You should be keeping your eye on this one specific deal. And if it starts going south, click that thing back on. Keep looking because you might have to bounce. But I don't like the next best thing, the person that sits back and wants to pick the best house they see because that'll never end. More inventory comes on every single day. So I'm not a fan unless there's reason. Yeah, I think that's a good comment. And I and I agree with you. I think there has to be a really good reason. I'm not an agent, of course, but if I was, there would have to be a really good reason for the sake of just doing it for the next best thing. I think you're just getting yourself into a world of pain <laughs> in terms of time wasting if you decide to go down that path. And I think at the end of the day, it really just comes down to controlling your clients. And if you have enough skill set, you know how to control your clients and keep them from themselves sometimes. And so that's what I would say about that. I love the tangent this took in regards to dating and being engaged. Did you guys see that here? Uh, yeah. Let me, let me just read this quick thread. It's the same as looking for a different mate when you are already engaged. No. Then there's a reply. So a first date or courtship equals marriage? That doesn't sound right to me. Then then Billy Grippo says, if you're in the middle of inspections, you're way past dating. More like the wedding invitations were, went out already. <laughs> and I just thought this was never going to end. I was like, suddenly this turned into a dating site. I um, agree with I agree with Billy there. I, <laughs> well, uh, unless you're the bachelor, yes, <laughs> of yeah. course. Right. You get to go if, through 25 people. If you are engaged, you are way beyond dating and courtship. So... I don't know if I fully agree with that analogy, but boy, it showed up. And once it did, it, it went on a tear. That's good stuff. <laughs> well, that's, that's a highly entertaining post. That's for sure. I almost thought like the rest of the post thread was just going to be about dating and marriage. <laughs> could have gone there. It could have gone there. That's, that's for sure. Well, hey, I think we tore through some really good topics this week. I think, you know, we all uh, threw in a bunch of really good thoughts and. Hopefully the, our listener base can take some wisdom from what you guys rolled out there and then uh, maybe just a little bit of entertainment from the emotional side of dealing with some of these things that I like to throw out since I'm not a realtor. But hey, Joe, we appreciate you jumping on this week. And as always, we enjoy this segment as much as any. That's for sure. Thanks, guys. Me too. Thanks for coming, Joe. It was great having you. Let's do it again in about 30 days. Perfect. That we will. All right, guys, it's episode 31. We are wrapping up. We'll see you guys again next week.
Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.